one of our mantra is we don't build good companies, we build great companies. And I think the beauty is that we have seen enough companies to realize what great looks like. And for us, we have a high bar. So one of the metrics that we measure a lot is how many founders, if they have the means to do so, how many founders that we back will invest again in Insignia. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the Southeast Asia entrepreneur ecosystem had surged in the last two years and is on track to be the next key market after China and India to have its own golden age. With me today, an old friend, Tan Yinglan, founding managing partner from Insignia Venture Partners. Yinglan, welcome to the show. No, thank you for the invitation. Bernard, I've been a big fan of the show. I'm a big fan of what you have done. And we go way back uh, to when Singapore was hardly called an entrepreneurial hub, when there was not that many entrepreneurs 10 years ago. So I'm very heartened that, that you continue to be very passionate about innovation entrepreneurship and a big fan of your show. Thank you so much, England. And I think you also have a podcast. I think it's also pretty popular with a lot of founders in Southeast Asia. But since you're our first-time guest, and I always want to know the origin story, how did you start your career? I'm Singaporean, like yourself, and I took the very conventional route of taking a government scholarship, studied in the US, came back to be a civil servant. Um, what was interesting was that I had stints um, to improve the sort of state of entrepreneurship in Singapore, which was hardly much, anything much. About 10-15 years ago, there, was, there wasn't enough entrepreneur, the best and the brightest wanted to go into banking, consulting, or even be a company. So my last thing was in a prime minister's office in a unit called the National Research Foundation, where we invested in funds. And, you know, we wrote the first checks to some of our friends in the region. We co-invested with them in about 100 plus investments. And the metric for that was really to stimulate entrepreneurship. Uh, less for returns, even though we had some decent financial returns. But I think what really happened was it, it pump primed the the first generation of entrepreneurs or at least a good number of entrepreneurs uh, in the region. And that was sort of like a referee like, where we set regulations and, and promoted the environment. And I got a bit bored. So I had a good fortune of uh, meeting Mike Moritz. And uh, one thing led to another, I joined Sequoia Capital as the first uh, hire on the ground in Southeast Asia. There wasn't a detailed JD job description. I was left to figure out uh, you know, how to make things happen. And I had the good fortune of uh, partnering with some of the most exciting companies in the region, Gojek, Tokopedia, respectively. Now they're called Goto. Actually, they are, they are filing to go public soon. Carousel, uh, Appear, which went public last year. And in 2017, I had entrepreneurial itch to, to start Insignia Venture Partners. And right now, it's uh, been just a little short of five years. So it's been a very fun journey. <laughs> It's interesting you say that because recently I was listening to a talk by Hien Go, who is actually one of the partner in Open Space Ventures, and he mentioned that oh, you just went to him when you were still in the government service and you were convincing him that the Southeast Asia entrepreneur ecosystem was going to happen, and that compounds over 10 years. And, <laughs> That's right. And he was not convinced at first, and I think eventually he came to see your point of view. But maybe coming to your career journey, what are the key lessons you learn that you can share with my audience? I think the first story you, you mentioned of Hien uh, is uh, quite illustrative, right? Where you had really the early generation of entrepreneurs that really, I, was, I wouldn't say struggled, but they had a difficult journey because the, the ecosystem wasn't ready. The uh, resources wasn't there, right? The, the talent pool wasn't there. And, and Hien did a remarkable job Asian Food Channel and realized that, hey, you know, he could be helpful to entrepreneurs. Uh, at Open Space. And it wasn't even called Open Space then. It was called uh, NSI. And even before that, it was called something else. So you went also through a great, great journey. 
But back to your question on the lessons. So I think the if you ask me on the journey, I would describe them in a couple of ways. Is I was first a referee in the government, then move on to be a a, a player at Sequoia, and then now I'm kind of a coach and, and founder of Insignia, right? And, and I think each of each of these journeys carries different lessons. I think first lesson was that the power law, right? So. I think, I mean, if you, if you read the book, which I highly recommend, you see that four or five or six companies really uh, make a lot of difference to the ecosystem or to a fund. So in the case of Southeast Asia, of course, C-Limited, uh, Grab, uh, and hopefully will move the needle in, and also Lazada as well, will move the needle in terms of A, the people that are trained in the process. So, you know, people who work at Lazada, Goto, Grab, C, they become entrepreneurs after learning the tricks of the trade at these places, right? So that's one. Two is capital, right? So if you, if you look at um, Hollywood, right, you, you have to make a successful movie, you need the actress or actor, you need the director with the script, and you need someone to bankroll the movie. I think the second key ingredient is capital. And 10, 15 years ago, when I was at NRF, the, the scene was quite different, right? There, there was not even seed stage capital. So we try to fix that for the seed stage capital. We had this whole co-funding scheme to encourage entrepreneurs to start companies and the incubator uh, and, and early stage seed funds. Then, okay, seed stage is no longer a gap. Okay, then there was a growth gap and our friends at Tamasek came in to, to be anchor LPs in some of the, I, I think, later stage funds. And that doesn't seem to be a gap anymore because we have now our friends from all over the world, uh, the late stage hedge funds to the late stage US-based growth funds all coming to Southeast Asia. So that, that doesn't need, seem to be a gap so far now. And then now we have sort of the exits, right? So I think SGX in particular has, has, has rolled out a slew of initiatives like trying to encourage companies to spec in Singapore and other good initiatives. So I think it's a function of enough sufficient and smart capital for entrepreneurs to scale up their companies. So that's the second piece. And the third piece is actually ideas. Uh, so I think the first wave of companies that has sprung up in Southeast Asia was the uh, clones, right? They took models from US, China, and, and it's actually a copycat. And those tend to be okay outcomes. They didn't tend to be great outcomes. Then we, we came to the mutants, right? Uh, and mutants tend to do decently well, right? I, I would say Goto is one. Uh, Ajay, who's actually one of the few, only company in the world that has a stock brokerage license, crypto exchange license, and also a bank license. is probably one of a kind, but it w- I would consider a mutant. But I think we're starting to see a third species, right? Which is the new species, right? Which is a company like Payfast, which actually doesn't really resemble any company in, in the West or the East, right? Because they 50% of Indonesia is unbanked. To, to, to power this unbanked, they, they have a few hundred thousand agents, they act walking ATM machines to provide banking services or digital services to the unbanked. And then there's a sort of cross-border overlay with, with a company that they acquire called X-First in Singapore. So that, I think, is really a new species that we're starting to see more and more in the region. So I think that's sort of the evolution of all three things, like talent, capital, and ideas. That's pretty interesting. And that also comes to the main subject of the day. I want to talk about Insignia Venture Partners and also the Southeast Asia ecosystem. My question for all VCs who come on the show, what is a typical day like for you? Oh, the typical day is uh, very interesting. It's, it's usually quite packed. Uh, I think we have the privilege of listening to great entrepreneurs explain their vision to us. I spend some time coaching the team and working with the team. Um, of course, you know, we, you know, we serve on the investment committee, so, so we have to make decision. Some part of time is spent with our limited partners on which we have many we work for for great causes. I think there's no better combination, right? We help entrepreneurs succeed. We, we create a bit of wealth for ourselves and our families, but we also you know, help good causes. 
such as university endowments and foundations, right, that, 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 that champion good causes. And I think the last bit of the job I, I enjoy is uh, recruiting both for our portfolio and for the team because I think they're the building blocks of the companies. Ultimately, what decides whether a company is going to be good or great is the people that they have, right? So the quality of the people, obviously quality people have many options, right? So you've got to spend a lot of time convincing them, hey, why would they quit a very cushy job at tech multinational to join well, Series A or Series B company that maybe have 10 people and uh, doesn't have a clear business model. And a lot of that is persuasion. So, so I think spend a lot of time on that as well. What is the inspiration behind setting up Insignia Venture Partners? I think you have pretty interesting background from first looking from the regulator side, then after that being in Sokoa Capital, which is probably the cream of the crop for venture capital, and then starting your own. I don't know whether you know this wine called Joseph Phelps Insignia, right? Mm. Oh. <laughs> if you go visit the vineyard, right? Two or three things that jumps out at you, right? I think one is that they were the pioneer of the full stack model, right? So now, now it's a bit more common, but they did everything from grape growing to the final sales and even doing the wholesaling. So I think that's, that's uh, one inspiration we took away, which is that, hey, to be a great investor, you, you really need to be full stack and not just do one part of the chain properly. And us, you know, uh, our investment team can do sourcing, they can do portfolio services, they can build companies, they can help companies with fundraising, even exits, right? So I think that's one sort of facet. The other one is they're actually one of the first folks that blended different wines together, right? So they, you can be you know, 95% Chardonnay, 5% Merlot. And I think they said, hey, it doesn't matter if it's a Chardonnay or Merlot, as long as the combination results in the best wine of that year, that's the insignia wine, right? So best in class. I think that also resonates a lot with us as well, because regardless of whether it's a fintech company or a prop tech company, you know, or a, a commerce company, hey, as long as the best company, we want to be the largest outside shareholder of that company, right? Regardless of sectors. So that's another interesting. The third one is actually the best wines are actually timeless. And you don't judge the value of the wine today. You judge the value of the wine 50 years from now, right? And I think that's a lot of how we think about tech companies, right? You don't really see you see the potential but you don't judge it now but you judge it how good it will be 50 years from now and the last point is actually consistency la. so it's about 50, insignia and wines has been about 50 years right but they have continued to be the most iconic uh wine they're consistently at the top of their class you know i think on average like 4.7 or 4.8 out of 5 year on year rating uh we are just in our fifth year we hope to be as consistent as the insignia wine uh 50 years from now <laughs> and continue to make good investments and then hopefully a partner with the best companies of their vintage and our people continue to grow and be more full stack. And actually just to sidetrack a little bit, uh, one of the things we did to achieve the end is we started an academy uh, called the Insignia Academy. And uh, one of the purposes is that, hey, we, we felt that there was, there's, there's a lot of incubators and accelerators in, in the region already, right? But there's not that many that trains uh, people want to be investors or angel investors or just want to be company builders, right? So we started this as a pilot, was it a year ago? Now we are in cohort three. And it's, it's booming, right? So we take in people from ex-Google, X-Strike, X-Lazada, or current Lazada or Lingo Ace people uh, come for 12 weeks. We teach them our venture. And a lot of them get interested in joining the industry. Some start companies, uh, some join our portfolio companies. So yeah, I think that's, that's sort of our part to, to help the community and, and grow the ecosystem as well. Mm. Coming to the inspiration behind Insignia, which is actually a very interesting story behind a wine company. We're thinking about vintage and also some people in VC also talk about their vintage portfolios as well. What is the mission and the vision for Insignia Venture Partners? 
No, it's very simple. We, we want to be the largest outside shareholder of Southeast Asia's most valuable company. Our core values actually represent that, right? So it's our core statement is C-R-A-F-T, craft. So the craft of making good wine, the craft of making good investments. Actually, it's quite funny. There is three things that look simple, but are very hard to do, to be actually very good at. I think one is writing a book, right? You, you can, you, anyone can write a book, but you know you want to be a prize winner. Uh, it's very hard, right? And it looks easy to start a restaurant, but you want to be a Michelin star, it's quite hard. The third is to be a, actually an investor, a venture capitalist, right? To, to be an investor, actually, you just write checks. But if a good one, is it's very hard. So we think that actually there's sort of five things, five core values that we we got highly. So C R A F T. C is collaboration. You know, in our team, we, we value teamwork a lot. Results, obviously, meritocracy. Hey, you need to deliver results. A is agile. If we like a company, we can move very fast, right? We meet meet them at night. We decide at noon. Uh, future oriented. Hey, we always look at where the future is going. Uh, we impossible try to invent it. And trustworthy lah. We want to our founders trust us. Our limited partners trust us. Yeah, I think that's sort of our goal to be the largest outside shareholder in Southeast Asia and craft is how we hopefully will get there. <laughs> mm. So what are the stages of the companies in their life cycle that the fund invests in? Yeah, we usually we are the first outside institutional investor. So it can be as early as in many cases, they don't even have an idea yet. It's a good entrepreneur that we like. We actually tell him the idea that we think may be a gap in Southeast Asia. And actually a lot of the people at the academy are thinking about some of the ideas we have told them. And in some cases, it could be, for example, which is a company that we uh, let the series be in. Um, this is the open banking form. And we looked at the mode that they have built, right? Because, I mean, uh, other than just scraping software, they really have built deep integration with all the banks in the, in the region, in, in Indonesia and Philippines. And that took years, right? So it depends on the sector, but I think, for example, like open banking, we can be prepared to write a 10 million or even bigger check in a new company that we have in the sector with. In some cases, we can go as low as, uh, you know, the first check, pre-idea. <laughs> we find a good guy, we give him the idea. And, and there's everything in between, obviously. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a specific investment thesis that's specific for the fund itself? Yes, we do. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think we have one investment thesis. we rather have a few investment thesis of where... The interesting sectors will be but i would say that we don't try to pretend we know what's going to happen in the future i think we are very good at finding entrepreneurs who have a good sense of what's going to happen in the future and we're pretty good at recognizing them to say that we know the future will probably be an overstatement we, we, have, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow right uh, but we have a good idea of knowing where to look for entrepreneurs who wants to invent the future i think that's probably a, a more accurate representation what are the verticals then you typically invest in for example is it like fintech or no maybe something else that people don't see that maybe there is a very, very big up cycle in the next 10 years for Southeast Asia? We don't, we don't try to predict like which sectors will be up or down, but I think what we try to observe is which sectors are very ossified and as a result, prone for disruption, where incumbents have uh, fat margins and quite backwards in technology, right? So obviously, financial services has been one of the big verticals that, well, I think less so for Singapore. Singapore banks are very forward-looking and tech-enabled and very competitive in general. But I would say regionally where there's a big unbanked population, I think that's where we see a lot of opportunities. But I, I, I would say that we don't try to have a preconceived notion of where the next big company is going to come from. Uh, we rather let it originate from the founder. And of course, we have some predetermined idea of where it can come from. But you know, the best opportunities and those that return the fund actually come from intersections of 
sectors that we that may not seem obvious at all. So just give an example, right? One of the companies that is doing very well in our portfolio is a company called Intellect. I-N-T-E-L-L-E-C-T, right? And we intersected with this founder and she, he is a serial entrepreneur called Theo. And he had this insight that, hey, mental health should be as important as physical health. People go to the gyms, but no, people don't really have an outlet to have therapy for their mental mental health, right? So it came with this platform, Intellect. We actually seeded it before it was launched because simply we like the guy, right? We, we like him. We think he's, he's a credible entrepreneur. He's a good, good, good track record. And then COVID happened. And it turns out that people got depressed and, and a lot of people got depressed. So they immediately zoomed to 3 million users, millions and millions of dollars of AR annual recurring revenue from big brands in the region, multinationals, obviously helped that. You know, there was sort of a global uh, attention on, on mental health. And and honestly, if you, I mean, of course, we can quantificate and say, oh, we look very smart on hindsight that oh, we predicted mental health was going to take off in, <laughs> in, in, during COVID. But the truth was that, hey, it was a founder's credit. All we do is to support him uh, and credit all belongs to him. I think we were, we were quite lucky and privileged that he, he allowed us to be founding partners uh, at the very start. Uh, and we have uh, supported him every round since then. Yeah. What are the traits of founders or patterns in startup teams that you index that you're most likely to make that investment into them? I know you talk about good founders. That's probably the first piece. But maybe are there any other things you index as well? I think the, there's only one. I mean, people ask me whether there's like five things. I think that there's only one. They are, they are unstoppable. Because like it's a founder with a wall in front of him. They will climb over the wall. They will go around the wall. They will... Uh, you'll ram the wall, they'll make friends with the wall, but they try to find a way to get uh, around the wall, right? And as, actually, it's quite interesting because it's sometimes quite hard to tell because usually, I mean, there's obviously founders who have worked in large companies and uh, they, have the, they have experience and track record and can do references. But I would say a non-trivial segment of the founders that we back are those that we believe they have more aptitude than experience and the, they, want to, they believe in something and they're, they're obsessed about something. And they try to fix it, right? And they have a cannot feel attitude. And they wanted to grab the opportunity to accelerate uh, this opportunity with us. And I think experience matters less, especially when things are being disrupted and, and changing so fast. The rate of learning matters, right? The first principles thinking matters, right? So I think there's there's no one size fits all answer, but I think we, we tend to know it when we, when we see it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what would then be the red flags you watch out for then? There are founders that are relatively easy to spot whether they are doing this for a quick buck, right? So I think those those are quite easy to identify. I think the the harder one to identify is okay. Here is an interesting founder, but there are some flaws, right, or some weaknesses, maybe in experience, maybe in competency. And what we try to do is okay, we try to be honest with them and say, hey, you know what? Are, I mean, we don't ask them what is your weakness, but if instead we we rephrase it to say, hey what would be the one or two first highest that you will make if we make the investment that will complete the, the key function of the team, right? And from that, we sort of figure out his weakness and we try to complement it. So we have an in-house recruiting team that helps to find talent that complements the founder's team. And in some cases, if that works magically, sometimes you also need a chemistry to work, right? Because people we, we hire may not necessarily be, the founder, be what the founder likes. And sometimes... Well, who the founder likes may not be what he needs. <laughs> so uh, it's a trade-off between competency and fit and, and culture and all that. Yeah. Mm. So you talk about the fund being a full stack capability and capacity. How does it help entrepreneurs to achieve their goals? I guess I want to double-click a little bit in the type of support you give them. I think you talk about hiring. 
what about things like fundraising what about things like giving them advice legal advice sometimes maybe they have because like you say right sometimes they have to deal with the wall they either walk around it climb around it you know two things like one is product market fit and the other one is founder market fit <laughs> if there's a word for that right so first do they make what people want right what yc analogy right so the product has to have users there's growing and there's retention and the path to monetization so that's one part of the equation then the second part of it is the founder market fit right is is this founder does he have the right background and the right motivation and the right obsession about winning this market and they really want to be the best in the world right now and if it's something that's very technical let's say life sciences you probably need a phd right so there are some sort of item skill sets but i think beyond that is really hey does this founder profile give him a shot to be best in the world and if the answers to these two things is yes uh, we can take care of everybody else everything else actually if there's product market fit of course if there's no product market fit we cannot force it it's the founder's job uh, to make this which there's product market fit. and then does is there founder market fit also it means the founder's background has a shot to be best in the world, right? If you can take care of these two things, we can take care of everything else. Fundraising, legal advice, you know, hiring, dealing with war, all that. Okay, we can take care of everything else. But we, we can't solve, if there's no product market fit, we can't, we, can't, uh, we can't solve that. If you have no founder market fit, sometimes you can solve that, but it takes a lot of work. You need to essentially rehire the whole team. And in some cases, we have done that, but it's, it's backbreaking work. Mm. Yeah. I probably think that valuation in companies it can be very different from very different companies. So I'm not going to ask about which company gets which valuation and how you think about it. But I, what I want to really understand is what is the mental model in thinking about the value of the company that you invest in? I think uh, there's a few ways to think about life. It's, well, the high level analogy, the one that I used earlier is the value of a wine is not, not how good it is today. It's how good it will be in the future. <laughs> and obviously that is a, a very raw heuristic. But I think the way to think about life is that, hey, if all things go well, right? And it's usually a probability of a probability of a probability of a probability. How big could this be, right? And if you aim for the moon, if you miss it by five kilometers, it's still fine, right? So if the end outcome is big enough and if a few things break up, right? This can be a very game-changing company. I think that's how we think about life. And of course, we we adjust it. We work backwards to say, okay, given the founder market fit and also the product market fit, what are the probability that's adjusted for this? Uh, and then how big the outcome can be? And reverse engineer to how much we think it's worth today. <laughs> so it's not really a like discounted cash flow and all that doesn't work in venture, okay? There, because there's no cash flow, <laughs> uh, right? So it's rather uh, and a science, right? So there's a science piece which deals with market size, how fast the market is growing, how fast the company is growing, what's the scale of the user base, how sticky they are. So that's the math part of things. Then there's the art part of things, which really have to calibrate some of these other factors that may not be quantitative. Hmm. So can you share some interesting companies that Insignia had invested in? I know you talk about IAP just now, maybe Haro as well. Yeah, yeah, Carol. I mean, Aaron is, is a great entrepreneur that we uh, intersected with. I know him for a while since we were in army together, actually. So that's the best form of reference checks, right? Uh, you, if you know someone as a classmate or we are in, in war together, we probably know someone's great much better than uh, someone you met over three Zoom calls where, where some investments are being made today. And, and actually, when he, he was still an investor at Sinclair Innovate, you know, we had a chat uh, and we were actually toying ideas and he was thinking about one education or two cars. And say, okay, you are a fast car guy, man. You, you, why do you choose car? So that, I think, was the evolution of car role. And obviously, it went through a lot of twists and turns. I won't further elaborate, but I will just uh, focus on the present. 
where there is no actually equivalent in the world today that is equivalent to what Caro does. Because not only do they have a car transaction business, which is the Alibaba of cars, they also have an after-sales business, which uh, reduce CAC, customer acquisition costs. But in addition to this, they also have a very lucrative uh, insurance and financing business. Right? And, and it's not just insurance brokerage, it's underwriting licenses in, in the region. So as a result, it's not just a one-time car transaction, but they can also monetize through uh, loans and insurance. I think that is, and he has done a great job in team building, hiring the best and the brightest in the region. He's done a great job in expanding in the region to make it a sort of multi-region and multi-function company. So that's one of the companies we are privileged to be partners with. So that's one. I think the second one that people may not pay that much attention to is this company called Shipper. Uh, it's also doing very well, clocking in the hundreds of millions of revenues. Because one of the big things that is missing in Indonesia and also in the region is fulfillment warehousing, e-commerce enablement, right? General, right? And obviously e-commerce uh, has taken off, but the supporting infrastructure have, may not have caught up. So uh, think of them as uh, not only just uh, logistics, e-commerce fulfillment, but they also have a Shopify piece that enables e-commerce. They also have a, a financing piece that uh, provide financing solutions to the logistic providers and also merchants. So uh, watch out for this company. I think this will be a massive one. And Phil is a, is a remarkable entrepreneur that has ability to scale across the region and in the cross functions and across discipline. So that's a, that's a very exciting one. Another company I, I thought worth talking about is uh, this company called Flip, uh, F-L-I-P.id. In Singapore, it costs zero to transfer money from bank to bank, right? And Thailand as well. But Indonesia, it costs about 50 cents, which is a bowl of noodles. <laughs> so uh, Flip allows people to transfer money from ERI to Mandiri for free. And as a result, they have uh, accumulated sort of billions of dollars of transaction volume. And with that uh, transaction volume, they do a lot of things with it, remittance uh, and other services, um, peer-to-peer transfer. And, and, and I think that is a game-changing company similar to what Cost has done in Korea, which has really turned out to be a full-fledged financial services platform. So I think these are some of the few examples that, that I think will be interesting to watch in the next few quarters and in the next few months. Yeah. What do you think about the exits for the companies you have funded? As in, I'm not asking you to say that, oh, this is going to exit this way, but how do you, in the framework of all your portfolios, how do you think about the exits space? The best acquirers for our companies are still the public markets. And obviously, okay, like right now, the global public markets are, are uh, taking a beating, right? Obviously, for reasons that, that the markets can control like war and interest rates rising. But I still remain that the, the most valuable companies, for the most valuable companies, the best acquirers are the public markets. But having said that, we are also seeing a major inflow of strategic interest in the region because if you look at where Southeast Asia has done, is it stepped into the gap between China and US uh, where there is a growing population, there's rising internet penetration, user base is, is getting more affluent, right? So, it becomes very strategically important for large internet companies in US, China, even Europe to pay attention to. So I think that's another path that founders are thinking about as well. And I think the other interesting things is that uh, we're also seeing very interesting options by founders to build an independently large company. Right. So we, we just looked at our portfolio and I would say close to 90% of our companies have a very long runway. And I think, you know, they want to build a, a very profitable company, standalone company where they can choose to go public anytime they want, right? Rather than having the usual cycle of raising capital two to three years. But I think some of our 
uh, companies, uh, rightly for wrongly, they have taken my advice to say, hey, you know, now the world is focusing on net revenue, gross profit. I've been seeing that came to them for the past like 18, 34 months. I think until they <laughs> until they are sick of my voice. Now I think they're finally seeing the light. I say, oh, maybe England was right. <laughs> and then they're grateful for the advice. Well, obviously, this, this the, the Russia-Ukraine war definitely showed that the, the importance of making sure you have financial discipline, you're frugal, and you're profitable, or at least a, at least a path to profitability. And I think that is the trademark of a resilient company that they can, they can be enduring. One thing we do not discuss is what is a good process in managing LPs, given that the Southeast Asia ecosystem is getting more and more sophisticated? No, that's a great question. So we think of our limited partners as more of business partners. So I think there's one portion which we, we sort of think of them as supporting. We, we work hard for them to support great causes, right? So that's like, I would say a majority. I think there's another segment that maybe provides us a minority of the capital, but provides us with 80% of the ideas, right? And these are from founders of unicorns. They see what has happened in the in US and, and China, and they say, hey, there is a likelihood of this thing happening in Southeast Asia too. Uh, they provide a lot of ideas for us. And so we think of them as business partners. They refer us investments. We also show them a lot of co-investment opportunities. So I think it's a quite a synergistic um, relationship between us, us and our limited partners. It's a, I would say a symbiotic relationship because they also share with us interesting uh, trends that they see in other markets uh, as well, right? So it's not just passive capital providers. They provide a lot of insights, not only just regionally, but also business cycles, right? So uh, what are some of the things we should pay attention to in different market cycles? And, and obviously they have the benefit of seeing multiple geographies. Just two more questions. One is that, what do you see now the broad trends in Southeast Asia that you're actually watching closely? And I think the second one is actually far more interesting is, you talk about a lot about like Caro doing multi-country expansion. How do you guide entrepreneurs to navigate geographic expansion? Because there are actually six important markets with different cultures and systems that they need to adapt to. No, it's not easy, right? So I think Caro is one of the few examples that, that is trying to do multi-country, multi-capability, uh, multi-function. Uh, so generally, we try to advise companies, hey, either you do one, con- one country, multi-function or you do one function multi-country. Trying to do both at the same time is usually a recipe for disaster un- unless you have a beefed up team. La. So like Corona is about three, three 4,000 people, right? So I think that is a different scale. But if you're an early stage company, your, your singular weapon is focused. So you try to do two things, your IQ of 200 becomes 100 each. Generally, it's not easy. So we try, we, for the younger companies that we work with, we try to start there off one country, one function. <laughs> uh, and then, okay, as they scale up, maybe one country, two product lines. And we tell them to be very careful when they think about crossing countries because if you try to do that too fast, there's a lot of product localization, there's a lot of marketing costs, there's a lot of understanding the market that you may not have affected into, right? And the fact that we have a lot of, I mean, we have quite a nice number of portfolio in each market, Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia helps a lot because when they go to a new market, they can call five people and say, okay, you know, I need an introduction to who and who. And obviously we have, we have quite a resource on the ground as well. Right? We have team members on the ground that helps them with hiring, with a lot of help and marketing. And, and so that helps. But even so, it is still challenging because you can hear the advice from someone on the ground, but you still have to do it yourself, right? <laughs> we actually advise them to do their work properly before expanding to, the, to, to, to multiple countries. We like to let the product tell us. So if the product is showing traction organically in another market, maybe that's the market you should expand to. Let, let, let the market pull you into that instead of you trying to push it into the market. We talk about entrepreneurs over this yeah. conversation. 
where do you think venture capital is heading for Southeast Asia? I think the instruments are getting more and more diverse and more and more sophisticated. End of the day, I, you're, you're right. The, the instruments are getting more sophisticated. But I think end of the day, we are a service industry. Right? We exist to serve the entrepreneurs. So the entrepreneurs are the heroes. We do our best to make that a Michael Jordan of their business. Lah. So we are here to make sure that hey, they can run the fastest, they can jump the highest, they can score the most, they can do the most rebounds. So obviously, each firm has different ways to do that. But I think end of the day is, hey, are you the best business partner for this founder who wants to build an audaciously large business? Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, then you are you will be a great investor. And if you're the person that a founder will call at 2 a.m. at night when they have a difficult problem, yeah, then they will tell other friends, right? So then, then it becomes a network effect and a, a virtual cycle. So my final question, what does great look like for Insignia Partners? That's a great question because uh, one of our mantra is we don't build good companies, we build great companies. And I think the beauty is that we have seen enough companies to realize what great looks like. And for us, we have a high bar. So one of the metrics that we measure a lot is how many founders, if they have the means to do so, how many founders that we back will invest again in Insignia. Meaning that if they're not don't have the means then don't count but actually if they don't have the means that means they haven't succeeded well in life. So that's actually a good metric because if they are willing to A, be able to invest and B, be willing to invest, it means that they have succeeded financially and B, they have, done, they have felt that we've done a good job. right? And, and we track the metric lah on a yearly basis. And I think the number is quite high. It can be 100%. I think we, we, we tracked it last year. It was on the high 80s. So hopefully we get better and better. And if the number is 100%, then I, I would say we are great. <laughs> mm. Well, England, many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, you being one of the early pioneers for this Southeast Asia entrepreneur ecosystem, it's great to have this conversation 10 years after so that we, now we can well, see you. the thank results. Thank you, thank you. Always, you know, you've been a great observer and also participant in the ecosystem. And, and I see you growing your podcast and being an evangelist for the, for the region. You're a big fan and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Last two questions. Any recommendations you can give that have inspired you recently? I, I would recommend this book, uh, The Power Law. And actually, those who are new to venture investing should take a look at this. Uh, other book that I've been reading is the book by the Walmart founder. Give me a sec. Is Sam Walton Made for America? Yeah, that's right. Sam Walton Made for America. Yeah. That's right. And then the yeah, other one, uh, which also I've just finished reading, is The Power Law by Sebastian Malby. That's right. The, the other one is Frank Slootman's Amp It Up. I think these three books. I would say uh, I work reading. Okay. How yeah. can my audience find you? Uh, shoot me an email at england at insignia.vc. Uh, you can follow us on, on Twitter. You, you can send us a hello at insignia.vc you know, as well. So or just show us an email. Okay. I'm also you're just going to add one more is to Google Tan Yinglan's name and you definitely find, I think two, you wrote two books, right? Uh, uh, actually, now four. Four books, <laughs> but, sorry, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah, so you probably should be able to find some of the books that he had read. Definitely yes, yes. can find us in all podcast platforms and tweet to us. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And of course, most importantly, give us your feedback. So, uh, Inlan, many thanks. Great, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Bernard. Enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Running.